I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back. Today, I continue my conversation with remarkable women of the Middle East. Remarkable, as I always remind you, it's not just about the impact uh, that those women have had on the region, but it's also about how far they've come, the challenges they had to overcome. I think remarkable truly is mostly about the journey, not the destination that we arrive at. And my guest today is an incredible example of that. She is originally a a born in Canada, uh, grew up in Kenya, and moved to Dubai many, many, many years ago to basically live a life that was very much in line with her passion. We, most of us don't get that opportunity. She, uh, at a very young age, uh, realized that she likes cognitive science, she likes learning and development. And so she had a dual master in Northwestern University in Illinois to study both, basically, and worked in the US for a while and then returned to Dubai to focus first on speech therapy and basically dealing uh, with children with learning disabilities, and then eventually ended up expanding her coaching, teaching, if you want, to also include moms and others, as a matter of fact. So basically adults and children, uh, regardless, if you need to learn something in terms of your needs for a life coach or your needs for improving your speech, Alia has helped hundreds, thousands of those in her career. Turns out that she's also the wife of one of my best friends. So that's Erfan. Hey, nice to meet you, man. But uh, mostly, actually, I've, I found that her commitment and dedication to what she does uh, is truly remarkable. So I introduce you today to Alia Subani. Alia, so I, first of all, thank you. We've been waiting for this for a while. It's finally here. And I'm very grateful that you gave me the time. I want to start with an observation. Mostly those who have interest in psychology or cognitive science and so on, I say mostly, no generalization there, are those who have had a need for those things growing up. And I know from your story that your childhood was a little bit, let's say, unpredictable. Would you want to start there and tell me a little bit about your story? Sure. Thank you so much, Mo. It's such a pleasure to be here and to be meeting you in person uh, I've heard so much about you, I've read your book, or at least begun to read your book, and I'm on, in the process of reading it, and listen to your podcast as well. So it's really an honor to be here. Thank you, Thank you so much. Uh, so my journey, yes, it begins in Kenya. Even though I was born in Canada, I grew up in Nairobi. That was home. And uh, my dad grew up in Uganda because that's where his family was for three or four generations. And then because of the better education and healthcare in Kenya, we were in Kenya and he was in Uganda. So he would be commuting back and forth. And, uh, and that's where I grew up and, you know, surrounded by nature and greenery. It was just the most beautiful place to be, really. I love Kenya. My fa- Oh, I shouldn't be saying that, but <laughs> definitely my favorite African country. Yeah. Uh, Kenyans are some of my favorite Africans. It's true, 100%. Yeah. Beautiful smiles. Like, oh my God. Oh yeah, yeah. big yeah. smiles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so that, that really is home. And so I growing up there and then, you know, unfortunately, when I was 11, just about to be 12, my father passed away suddenly from a heart attack. And uh, that threw our lives into, you know, tumult, basically. So we ended up uh, leaving Kenya two years later and moving to Dubai to be closer to my mom's side of the family. And uh, that ended up being a pretty good move for us, I would say. We've been here ever since, and Dubai is definitely home. And uh, it it's, has a very, very special place in my heart. And the amount that I've been able to accomplish and the amount of impact I've been able to make and I also say the inspiration and the motivation to, to think big and to grow big and to, to do as much as I can 
comes from being here and the environment yeah. and the people and yeah. just the government. And I'm just really, really grateful to be here. So my, my journey with speech and language. So in Uganda, I have a first cousin. And uh, unfortunately, when she was born normally and at three, she contracted meningitis. And unfortunately, after that, it ended up affecting, you know, her cognition and her ability to communicate. And I guess for me, that may have been, at least subconsciously, one of the reasons why I wanted to pursue the field. Um, in high school, I'd done a lot of model United Nations, and I thought I was, you know, I You're knew- You're one of those. I'm one of those. I was in The Hague. And I knew that I wanted to, you know, save the world and change the world. And I thought the way to do that would be to join the UN and save the world like that. So I went into university thinking, well, that's what I'm going to do. And the good thing about an American education is it's, you can play around. You can, you know, try things and decide that it's not for you. So I decided I needed something more specific. I wasn't sure what. Um, and then it was a friend of mine who said, well, Alia, you're such a great teacher. And I was like, huh. I never even thought about that. But as I look back at my life, I'm like, I've always taught. That's what I've always done. And yet I wanted to go into a little bit more the scientific route of teaching. Uh, and so, you know, I, I explored and I was very lucky that Northwestern had an amazing program for, it started out as a program in communication sciences and disorders. I did my bachelor's in specifically learning disabilities and then I ended up pursuing a master's in speech and language pathology and learning disabilities. And that was where I needed to be. And, and that was my calling. So it's a combination of cognitive science, psychology, and education. And I love learning about the brain. So you quickly spoke about losing your father at 11, moving here. Yeah. How did you deal with that? I mean, it's, well, it's probably the most difficult age to lose a father. Yes. I was just about to hit puberty. Not the best time. It's never a good time. And, and that was particularly hard, I would say. So no, not very well. <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, we, we all tried, we, we, we had some therapy sessions and, you know, but thinking about it, it was my mom thrown into this situation with three young children and some difficulties with, with family that didn't make it easy. And I, being a mother now, I really I truly understand how, how hard it may have been for her. But for me, I, I blocked everyone out. You know, I just locked my door and I, and I just shut the world out. And uh, I stopped eating. You, you know? did? Yeah. I was anorexic for a year. I thought that, and now I know that it was a way of controlling my environment, you know, controlling what I could manage to, uh, because there was just so much unknown, right? And also what I realize now after my, my journey with this is that my sacred wound, a term that they use in psychology, is abandonment. Because me as a little child kind of experiencing sudden death of my father who died with a smile on his face, you know, which made it worse for me um, because I always thought that he was happy to leave, you know. So for me, the sacred wound was abandonment. My dad abandoned me. He left me. And I didn't realize that until much later on. I ended up coming out of the uh, anorexia, thank goodness. And then six months into my relationship with my current husband, I was triggered by something that he said. And um, I guess as a consultant, he was leaving a lot. So a lot of abandon, like, you know, in quotation marks, abandonment, right? Because I hadn't dealt with it. So a lot of leaving and something that he said, you know, or I said to him and he couldn't say those words back, you know, like, I'm ready, Irfan, I think you're it. And he couldn't say those words back, right? And so that just led me into maybe an eight-month to 12-month-long depression uh, where I was literally in bed crying every day and I didn't really know why. And, uh, you know, for me, I, I always try to seek help. This is, I, I always, I'm really good at, about that. And I knew, I, I really knew that I was not going mad or crazy. And I knew that it wasn't him. I knew that it wasn't Irfan. I knew that it was my journey and something that was triggered within me. And so I literally asked everyone I could think of for help. I called people who were dealing with, you know, who I know had their own journeys with depression in the past. I called them up and, and I really just started to figure out, you know, who I should turn to for this kind of support. And um, along my journey, I met an amazing psychologist who also lives in Dubai at the moment, and her name is Cynthia Gonzalez. And I would say within the first few minutes of me explaining my journey, 
she was able to pinpoint it and say, Alia, you're grieving the death of your father. And I was like, wow. I mean, yeah, actually, you're right. That's that's what's that's happening. That's how many years later? Oh, 15, 16 years Yeah, ago? many years later. You know, and I'd never truly grieved. I just kind of used Band-Aid approaches and I never felt the feelings, right? And in psychology, we talk about in these, this day and age, really sitting with your feelings. And I never really gave my, myself the opportunity to do that. And so many years later, that's what happened. My, I guess my subconscious was ready. You know, you spoke about Saturn Returns in your previous podcast. Yeah, with Kagi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it happened at 28. That's oh, when it happened. Interesting. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You okay. know? So, uh, so that was my journey. And I ended up taking a year-long transpersonal psychology course with Cynthia and a group of amazing people of all ages from many different parts of the world. And it was the most profound experience ever. Hard, very hard, because you were pulling up all your baggage and all, all the hard shadows and you were having to face them every single time. And I was, you know, in the midst of being just super reactive with Irfan and, and, uh, and we were reacting off of each other. It was a, like a vicious cycle. And through this journey, we ended up, you know, gaining a very, very, very deep understanding of each other of our relationship and as a result, I think, ended up leading to our strength, so. He's a good man. I mean, I really I really think that it was worth the pain to keep each other, but tell me about, I'm, actually it's the first time I hear the term sacred wound. What is a sacred wound? So, you know, we all have pasts, we all have childhoods, you know, nothing is perfect. Our parents are not perfect, right? No situation is perfect. And so as a result of that, when we've experienced something in our childhood that we may not have processed effectively, it ends up becoming part of a wound that can end up being triggered in relationship, whether it be relationship as a parent, so with your child, whether it be in relationship with a partner. So that's why all the research now around parenting is around integration, right? And what does integration mean? It means that we have different systems in our brain. And what is would be great for parents to understand is how to enable our children to integrate their brains. So, and this is a, a term by Daniel Siegel, and he's an amazing, like, he's just incredible. And so integrating the brain, and you can integrate the brain in many different ways. And, and one example of it is if your child is experiencing something or has experienced something traumatic, like they got a dog jumped on them. And from then on, you realize that that child may have a fear for dogs because that's an implicit memory. That's me. Okay. I, See? I, I don't fear dogs, but a, tra- but a dog did jump on me in a very violent way when I was seven or eight. Yeah. And, you know, I still forgive dogs. I think they're cute. <laughs> but in all honesty, I will tell you openly, I mean, I like to pet them from a bit of a distance. <laughs> I, I never prioritized it as my real wound. You know, it's like one one of many, so I don't work on it. Does the expression sacred wound means it's one? Good question. And I'm not a psychologist myself. From my understanding of it is that there is one kind of overarching wound, yeah, mm-hmm. that... um ends up consistently being triggered in in your in your intimate relationships yeah with your kids or with your partner or whatever it may be and it is actually in that process of being triggered where healing can occur yeah amazing so so for me it was the abandonment for Erfan it was something else right kind of the reaction and so together we healed each other's wounds mm-hmm. yeah And actually kind of just going back to that point of even the minor wounds in childhood, it's really important to talk about what has happened and to try and enable, you know, your child to feel the feelings and name the feelings so that the brain becomes a lot more kind of understanding of the event that happened. So instead of becoming an implicit memory of I'm scared of dogs and I don't know why, it ends up being, well, I had one experience with a dog and this is what happened and I've processed it. And now I can actually build a different relationship with dogs. If you want to. If you want to. I don't right? want you to. have that choice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this is quite observant of you to say, look, I am not crazy. I Something was triggered and then you start to work on it. This sadly, most adults don't do, but for sure, children don't do. 
right? And in my personal experience, of course, with my own kids, Aya specifically, where, you know, I remember vividly after many years of trying to connect and understand, she once told me about a specific event where I was not aware at all that this would make her have that reaction, if you think about it. And it was some kind of a, a joke in my mind. I was thinking she would laugh about it, but instead she took it as I don't have the right to express my feelings when I have them, right? And Aya is very reflective and she's very good at finding her real self. But it took her many, many, many years until her 20s when she could actually say, Papa, remember when you did this, this made me think that, right? Most kids don't do that at all. And, and most of your work, at least in the very, uh, you know, until today, actually, most of your work is still with kids. So what happens with kids, especially in the speech disability? Well, in fact, you know, I've actually even kind of moving away from the word, even though my one of my master's degrees is in learning disabilities, I move away from that word. And I, and that's why I say learning and development. Okay. Um, because to me, it's, it's almost like it's a negative connotation. I agree term, with that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and what I like to, to think about what we do every day, and this is the mission statement for, for the developing child center as well as unlocking potential. I like unlocking that. confidence. I like that. I mean, I've been thinking about this so deeply recently. Actually, you know how spiritual people will always say healing, we're going to heal. And I think there is a lot of negative connotation. It's almost like you're broken in a way that, you know, I need, I, I've been thinking there must be a better way to say finding our potential or becoming free or whatever. So sometimes when we use those words, I think disabilities or even the terminologies themselves, ADD or this or that, yeah. they're sort of negative in, in the way that yeah. we position them, yeah? Yeah, and that's that's interesting, right? The whole question of identity, mm. right? Yes. Even for us, right? We are We have so many dysfunctional beliefs that we end up growing up with because of our society and culture and sex and whatever it may be. And then, you know, you end up doing the work, you know, to unravel that and to kind of think, well, what is not serving me anymore, right? And so, you know, even from a young age, when a child is faced with a difficulty, right? And for some, it can be milder, okay? So where the S is, a child is unable to produce the S, okay? And for others, it's something that affects, you know, every element of their life because they may have a diagnosis of autism right? Or another kind of genetic disorder. And, you know, from, you know, the day they were really tiny till late into even their, into adulthood, they're maybe requiring therapy or some kind of help or, you know, service. And so how do you form an identity around that? You know? Yeah. Uh, and it just reminds me of a story of a young, amazing lady that I've had the privilege of knowing since she was four. And now she's um, 18, I would say, and she's in university and, and in an exceptionally good university. And the journey that we've been on together, where we started out where we were doing speech and language therapy to work on auditory processing skills and connection and social skills and ability to understand and express herself effectively. And, and from there, as she moved into her teen years, it really did become a lot about coaching and trying to figure out, well, who am I in the context of like what I've been through, my identity, and because I've been through this hardship and this process, how can I enable other people to reduce the stigma they, you know, they see when they see a child who's, who's suffering and, and how can I empower, empower other kids who are facing what I'm facing? And so together, we wrote a book. Oh, did you? <laughs> Mostly her, okay? And uh, I was just there to kind of support, edit, et cetera. And that book is, yeah, she, she has it on Amazon. So I'll, I'll share the details. I don't want to disclose in case uh, she doesn't feel comfortable with me doing so. But, you know, and it's all about uh, children with various superpowers mm. who have their weaknesses and have their superpowers as well. I mean, when you think about it, when you, when you say it the way you said it, Sorry to say, but it makes me feel that almost every one of us needs to go through that learning, right? I mean, in a, in a very interesting way, it just hit me when you were talking about her, her abilities at a young age to maybe say things or express herself. I mean, how many people do I know that express themselves horribly, like even hurt themselves because they express themselves really badly, you know? Is it about speech or is it about also your 
inner thinking uh, that you're working on? So I think it's a combination. I will just give you another example, just so you know exactly what a speech therapist does. So Jerry Logeman, who is the founder of dysphagia, which is the, the study of swallowing, she was at Northwestern and I had the privilege and the honor of being her student. And uh, when we first arrived the first day of class, she asked us a question and she said, which would you rather give up, eating or speaking? You know, and there was a moment of silence in the room because everyone was, you know, contemplating and they really couldn't make a decision about that, right? And Forever? Yes, let's say forever. If you had to choose one, Mo, if I asked you that question. It depends on how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, the, in the last uh, year or so, I'd give up eating and just, <laughs> just speak everything I know. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't last that long, right? <laughs> well, you know, and it's, it's, it's one of those questions that really gets you thinking about the impact a speech and language pathologist has on an individual's life, because that's what we do. We deal with feeding and swallowing, and we deal with speaking and communicating every single day of our lives, right? And so, you know, I think in terms of seeing a speech therapist specifically, it is for a particular, usually a particular reason, right? Well, um, and it could be, like I said, as mild as, as, as not being able to produce a sound to very severe as having, you know, a different kind of like a, a genetic disorder or whatever it may be. And so, you know, I think in the work that I do, and I'm going to give an example of children that I work with who stutter, Yeah. I've had a 15-year-old who, and actually also a five-year-old, and at the beginning, you know, I have them draw out their relationship with their stutter, okay? And the five-year-old, you know, said, well, I hate my stutter. Every day I ask God, why did he do this to me? You know, and I pray to God to take it away from me, right? A five-year-old. And then I have another five-year-old who just is completely oblivious and has What's really stutter? doesn't care, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. Whatever. <laughs> so it's interesting. And temperament actually plays a very important role when it comes to even the persistence of a stutter. It's actually been scientifically documented. And then I had a 15-year-old who also kind of came in really negative and negative self-image, not really able to voice himself. And through the journey, the curated experiences as well, where I had other stutterers, adult stutterers come in and, and talk about their journeys. And we go through the different techniques that they, that a child can use to overcome a stutter. That's part of it. Technique is part of it. And then part of it is really about the mindset and about building confidence and acceptance that, you know, this is something that you may need to deal with for your life. Right. And so how do we come to terms with that? How do we advocate for ourselves? And so that's the whole journey around treating an individual who stutters. What, what causes a stutter? It is actually, they found that there is a neurological element to it. There is a strong family history to it. So the first questions I'll ask of a parent is, is there a family history? Is how long has the stutter persisted? So if it's been two years, then there's a higher likelihood that it will continue. Um, if the individual is a boy versus a girl, unfortunately, it's also a higher likelihood. Is that true? Yes. And for many, actually, learning disabilities as well, it tends to be something I, that... I know, I know the spe you know, being on the autism spectrum yeah. is, more, is more for boys than it is for... Well, there's also... Girls also demonstrate different... It's not the same. When you diagnose a girl versus a boy, there are different elements that you take into consideration that maybe is, is more new in the research right now. So it could be just the way we're also kind of diagnosing and labeling with autism. But certainly for stuttering, it's been proven that a lot more boys will persist. And also temperament plays a role in that too. Hmm. <laughs> Interestingly yeah. enough, you know? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like you're stressed about it, so. Yeah, and so it creates that cycle. Yeah. And kind of going but, back to, But is, is, yeah. does that mean it is a brain wiring? Like it is not a habit, it's not no. taught by your parents, for no, example. No, 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 not at all. So for example, there is an approach called the Litcom approach that is used. I'm trained in it. I don't use it consistently because it, it is more of a behavioral approach. And from my perspective, I, I really don't think it is a behavior because they found that there is a, you know, a neurological component to it. However, you know, kind of changing our mindset and, you know, working on our emotions and our feelings towards it and our own self-confidence enables you know, an individual to really overcome it in, you know, in, in a way that's right for them, if that makes sense. And, and going back to your question about the voice, I had an adult client who was also a stutterer. And in our work together, something came up from his childhood, which uh -huh. was around not being able to speak his truth or his voice. Mm -hmm. 
And so that was really fascinating that how it took us down that journey and how we ended up kind of pursuing that. Wow. So, 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 so I'm stuttering now. Mm -hmm. So you, when you, when you are told not to express yourself, Mm -hmm. your speech will follow so that you don't express yourself. Uh, Well, I think it was probably two things happening at the same time. Likely there was, there was a stutter and then as well, there was this other component. Again, was it because of the stutter or was it because of the culture and how it wasn't okay for him to express himself, right? So interesting. And so that's that's another interesting aspect, yeah. Yeah, I mean, my first interest in the topic was actually when I started to prepare to build the studio for slow-mo. Being a techie, of course, I had to build it myself. So I looked at all of the equipment and all of the framing and all of the techniques of videography and so on, techies, we always do that. But I eventually ended up with a photography teacher or a videography teacher on YouTube that used the movie, The King's Speech. He was teaching it from the point of view of, of photography. So basically saying, you know, when the king was in the center of the screen, that was the moment when he was confident and able to to speak when he was on the, on one third of the screen or when he was in the very far background of the screen, you were minimizing him with through videography. And I, then I watched that movie again and, and it really blew me away how the videography was incredible, but the idea of his, his own confidence as represented in the visual elements of the movie and how that led him to be able to speak eventually, which was more positioned as the voice of a nation, really, rather than just his voice. It's quite touching, really. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is that moment of success, I think, made us all feel amazing about it, even though I... I'm not a British person and I don't follow the king and, you know, it was time of war and I don't like war and all of that. But it was just that amazing victory, if you want, of finding your voice. Did did you have some of your clients that, or patients that you got to a moment where they actually changed their life in a way? Every, every day it's happening. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, the, the kind of work that I do, I feel like I'm a vessel really for God's work. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really how I feel. It's, it's something that I've been drawn to something. I know that I'm, I can, I can do well and, and something that I, I feel like I've been, I've been used to do. <laughs> and so, you know, every single hour I'm making an impact. And, and for me, it's, it's really about, well, I want to see that progress every time a child comes in. And so if that's not happening, what do I need to change? What needs to work? How do I connect in a different way to enable that progress to occur? And so I've had children who've come in, you know, barely saying, you know, a handful of words and just through the power of play and connection, the power of play and connection. And I tell you, this is the most important element. They have learned to speak in sentences within months. It's just... What I realize, whether I'm working with the tiniest child or the oldest client, is that everybody wants to feel connected. Everybody wants to feel heard. Everyone's voice is important. And so when you draw attention to that and when you enable that unlocking through connection, it's magic. It really is magic. How does that work? What do you mean by connection? So in in your experience, how does it look like? Oh, connection is, is, like I say, the key to unlocking that potential. So a new child comes into my room, the first thing I do, I don't even, you know, really say hello to the parents. I'm down on the floor, eye contact, looking straight at the child and just, just knowing that, that someone's looking right at them. Someone's there, someone's present, someone's really trying to understand them. It's, it changes everything, everything. And whether that be at TDCC, the developing child center where I'm working with kids, whether that be when I'm in a coaching session, right? That just very direct eye contact and smile and the joy of seeing that person just, you know, demonstrated on your face, that changes everything. I'm a huge advocate of that. Actually, when I normally, a lot of people ask me about my wonderful Ali and Aya, which I have to say were two remarkable young adults. And, and Aya is, is remarkable in so many ways. Ali, when he left us, was just quite impressive. And most people say you must have done something raising them that made them that way. And I don't believe that that much other than one thing, which was this, exactly this. 
I really always treated them not just as adults, but like the most important person in the room. So, you know, we would have Ali and I, we used to go for Juma prayers, for example, together or whatever. So we would have this, that half an hour in the car together going back and forth. And he was a young child, really. And we would have long conversations, like really long conversations where he expresses his points of view. I listen attentively about a video game, for example. It doesn't matter what the topic is, but if it's important to him, I would listen very attentively. And I actually, I urge parents to make that their number one priority. I think we normally box our kids either into the box of a burden, you know, like they're annoying and stressful and so on, or the, bo the box of a duty where I have to do things for them or the box of a, my ego as a protector or provider. So I have to be doing things for them. It's just not what they really are. They're little humans, just little in size, right? hundred percent. And, and this is what I teach every day to parents is about finding those magical moments for connection, yes. undistracted moments, right? Where you're completely focused on your child. And even if it's in 20 minute segments, right? 20, 20, 20, where you're just putting your phone aside and you're just giving them that undivided attention. It's so valuable. And I think also it's just like thinking about the space right? So for example, I'm in the bath or my child is playing with a, you know, a toy and uh, I have the choice. So thinking about that space, that moment, and that moment can enable a choice that can lead to connection, right? And so many of us, like you'll see the child is playing, the child is occupied, okay, I'm just going to pick up my phone and order that toy that I wanted to from Amazon, right? This is good opportunity, the child is occupied. Well, my invitation is to actually say, okay, use that time, that moment to put the phone down and join in the play with your child. Mm. That is much more valuable. That is what your child wants way more than a new toy from Amazon. Mm. You know? Yeah. I mean, most parents will say that the number one use of an iPad is to get the children to just leave them alone. Right. But I mean, the question really is what if the child is annoying? You know, some parents do that because they just are dying for that little break. Mm. So I think that, you know, when it comes to parenting, the journey is your healing as well. Yeah. <laughs> Wing. <laughs> <laughs> so you understanding you and understanding your triggers is as important and for you to be a present parent for your child, right? Mm. And uh, what's interesting about what Daniel Siegel says in one of his quotes, which I love, is that there's a stream where there is a, there's a flow, right? And in life in general, you want to be in that flow, right? When you veer too much to one side of the bank, there's chaos. When you veer too much to the other side, there is rigidity, so, you know, are we going to spend our time kind of zigzagging between them, right? And then, you know, trying to find that flow, right? So where is it that we can follow our child's lead? Where is it that we can let them lead and give them the opportunity to do so? Where is it that we can find the time and space to, you know, ignite our, our playful side, Yeah. right? Because we're born with it. You were a child. You used to play. Right. So, you know, sometimes giving your permission to just let go is so, so valuable and so important. And of course, there are times when you're going to create boundaries and do your work or whatever it may be. And yet there are also times where as a necessity, you have to carve out this time for your children too. I 100% agree. You went from children to crunch moms. Yes. Called. Yeah. So, so you're, I think that's a, a smart move, right? Because <laughs> basically, you know, if we can teach the moms, we probably are going to get better children. So, so what, what was that about? So I had the pleasure of meeting the founders of crunch moms, strange way, actually. And so it's an amazing, amazing group of women. Julian Liang and Vinny from Crunch Moms were, you know, the four musketeers. And we're really trying to support women in whatever phase of motherhood and career they may be at. So it's, you know, the, a very dedicated professional platform for women. And we run workshops, you know, or we run workshops, we run events every week, we, have, we run group coaching sessions and summits. And it really has become just a very, I would say, authentic community and we're, we're all there just trying to help women find 
success in their own, on their own terms. And so that's been a really, really powerful journey. And uh, I'm running, you know, through the Crunchworms Designing Your Life uh, workshops, which is uh, an amazing approach out of Stanford. It's a life and career exploration approach. And really, we're trying to move away from the fear of creating your life to the excitement, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of using the same thinking that created the internet and created a Ferrari and using that. I don't like product. Ferraris. Okay, did well. I say that publicly? <laughs> Whatever. What's your favorite did, car? Did I say that publicly? <laughs> it doesn't matter what my favorite car is. I actually do not like Ferraris. I think they're overrated. Oh my God, Ferrari will never invite me to speak again. Okay. So, so did you find a change of topic, change of topic? Um, did you find um, that Middle Eastern women are different? Like they're, they have different needs, different career needs, different problems, different challenges, different motherhoods uh, issues? Yeah. You know, I think we have such a diverse community of women from all over the world, including Emirati women. And I feel like we connect on our humanity and we connect on the fact that life is a process and life has its ebbs and its flows. And in that journey, whether I'm in the Designing Your Life session with someone who's kind of now retired because they've done so well, or someone who's just starting out their career journey after having kids, everybody is going through a different process at a different time. And so we connect on that. And I think as, as parents, there are definitely common topics that, that women face. And so we're really trying to, to target our events and our, and our sessions towards, you know, the questions that they have. So I say we connect on what brings us together, if mm. that makes sense. Well, that was a loaded question. Yeah. So, so pa- okay. pa- pa- part of my, yeah. part of my uh, intention with this series, yeah. The Remarkable Women yeah. of the Middle East, is to sort of... Uh, contradict CNN and Fox and BBC a little bit of the image of the woman of the Middle East, because I actually think the women of the region are so diverse and so remarkable and so incredibly feminine in every way they they take to the world. And in many ways, they are completely free to choose if, in many ways. And I think the world doesn't know that about us, it doesn't know how advanced the woman of the Middle East is. As a matter of fact, I, you know, every time I go to Saudi Arabia, which has a very, a very conservative image in the global media, I get blown away by incredibly visionary women who are entrepreneurs and successful and doing really well, very highly educated, incredibly intellectual, incredibly intelligent, and at the same time, mothers and wives and, and engaged in society in so many ways, taking care of their parents and so on. And I have to say this loaded question here was to try and say, are there differences? And yes, you're absolutely right. There are differences across everyone in the world, but we're all similar in, in what we align around. And I think that's something I'm trying to bring more and more to the, to the mind of the listener, if you want, that if you open up to what connects you to others, we're all the same. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm reading a lot of Joe Dispenza's work at the moment. Great, great work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and really it's just, it, it is about that nobody in no time, right? And no space. And, and once you start to see yourself as more than an object or everything around you is more than an object, and actually there's space and there's energy around everyone. And we're all, and that energy has the potential of affecting the energy of somebody else. And, you know, that kind of source you know, I think it just, it really puts life into perspective, right? We're all, we are all connected and my success is your success, right? And so that's kind of the, the energy I, I feel when I'm working with the crunch ones as well is that we're really trying to enable that. So it seems to me that there are two different approaches here. With crunch moms, you're trying to say, let me help you find a path through life with your children therapy you're sort of trying to fix a problem after it happened. Is, is, that, is that a reasonable analogy? Um, I, I would say that, that the two words that summarize everything are unlocking potential. So to me, it doesn't matter whether you're young and you're facing a speech and language impediment or whether you're older and you're trying to figure out your life or your work, right? For me, it's, it's about unlocking the beautiful, amazing individual you are and really unleashing that that creativity and that confidence into the world. So that's, I guess, what brings everything together is communication, connection, and coaching and unlocking potential. Communication, connection, connection. 
and coaching. Coaching. Okay. Yeah. So we, we spoke about connection. Communication here is related to the speech and language and uh, kind of enabling an individual's voice, right? Mm. To the best of their ability to be able to, to say their truth, right? Yeah. So I'll go back to your own story. So it seems to me that when you and Arfan were triggered by one sentence, you had the awareness to be able to do something about yeah. it, to, to say, I, I need to handle this. Sometimes when our kids, for example, are starting uh, to stutter or whatever, you said that if it persists more than two years, it actually is likely to persist. Does that mean that the parents should sort of address the issue very early on if they were to help? What are the signs that you would ask parents to keep an eye on when it comes to speech uh, impediments yeah. and what should they recognize as a reason to go to an expert? Okay, that's a great question and very important because early intervention, getting in early is the way we change the brain most effectively. The brain pathways, I mean, they're always plastic, which means that they're malleable, they're able to change throughout our lives and yet they're the most potent where the, you know, the, the, the pathways are forming so quickly in the early years, zero to four, that you really want to be getting in as early as possible. So when, you know, someone says that, oh, you know, he'll catch up later, or, you know, my doctor said this and, you know, we don't need to worry or my, I am not of that mindset. <laughs> my mindset is, well, the earlier we get in, the more effective any of the treatment will be leading to more positive outcomes moving forward and in the confidence of the child as well. So there are many different things to keep in mind when you're bringing up your child. One thing that I would say is important to do is to just be mindful of the developmental milestones. So just know when your child and write them down, right when your child kind of set up, uh, started to crawl, started to walk, and just compare them to developmental milestones, not as a means of causing concern, but just as a means of educating yourself on what is normal and what are the normal ranges. For example, a child can take all the way up to 18 months to, to walk, um, and that's acceptable, right? Or they can take up to a certain age to say the th sound, and that's okay, it's normal. But if you're following the developmental milestones, you know when to ask the questions, and then it might also guide you in terms of who to ask the right questions to. So one thing I tell parents is that you really want to go to the most, using Ray Dalio's term, believable source when it comes to seeking help. So going to, for example, and this has happened with my own son, so I'm, I'm just sharing that, um, going to an ENT and asking about, you know, your child's language development is not appropriate because they the do ENT is like an ear, nose and throat doctor <laughs> because, right? because I've had to deal with this with my own son and, and the most believable source is a speech and language pathologist. So go to them when you're concerned about your child's language development, right? And also a lot of times... Parents are seeking guidance as they should from, you know, parents, their own parents, from doctors who are generalists, like general doctors, general pediatricians, general teachers. And that's awesome. And that's great. And they're actually able to kind of guide the parents to seeking help. However, sometimes when you are concerned about something in particular, really go with your gut instinct on that and try and seek the most believable source to answer your question, right? And it may not be the generalist, it may be the, spe the specialist mm. when it comes to that. Mm. Yeah. So is it possible that uh, a speech uh, impediment would happen later in life? So could it be that a child is okay until seven, as age seven, and then by age seven, something traumatizing happens and then they catch? So usually, I mean, typically the, the trigger for, for example, for a stutter will happen before the age of seven, mm. right? However, you can have acquired speech and language impediments, right? Like, um, isn't it? Demi Moore's husband, ex-husband, famous actor. Why can't I think of his name? Don't ask. Okay. Yeah. Well, he has aphasia. So yeah. For example. It's good that I remember who Demi Moore is when you, saw, when you spoke about that. Yeah. Um, you know, so he has aphasia. So he had, I think it was secondary to a stroke, for example. And that affected the language areas of the brain, which means it affects his ability to communicate, right? Other people who've had, you know, traumatic brain injury. And that's affected their ability to communicate and speak and maybe other cognitive areas as well. Uh -huh. So there are there is stuff that can happen later on in life that could affect your ability to communicate. And for children, I guess likely sometimes a child may be, you know, labeled or something that they were able to kind of brush over as children end up becoming a lot more 
paramount and more, a lot more obvious as they get older. And so at that point, an individual may seek a diagnosis. So I have a friend whose husband, you know, recently got diagnosed as on the spectrum, you know, after spending many, many years uh, not realizing and not knowing that. Oh, I, I, know, I know so many right? of those. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, so w- w- working in the tech space. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We, we all were on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's quite a, a brain design, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and then when it comes to women, what do you think the triggers are? When should a woman start to work on design your life type of approach? So, you know, it's, it really is an amazing approach to enable fulfillment, joy, meaning in your life. So, you know, like I said, in the best of circumstances, we may live to a hundred, the hundred year life. And so therefore in that hundred year life, we're going to go through, you know, different stages. And so like I said, for me, it may be that I'm just starting out a new career after having a career for a while. It may be that I've retired and I have like 40 more years to live because I'm not going to die till 100. So how are you going to design that end of your life, right? And so we can come at different segments, different moments in time. And I would say a lot of women who are really curious about the program feel like they're stuck feel like they're looking for more meaning, they're looking for more connection, they're looking for more for more fulfillment in their lives. They are feeling, you know, like they're just disengaged at work or they're not happy where they are. And these are some of the reasons why they may really seek the Designing Your Life program. Or they're going through some kind of a transition, whether it means that they want a promotion at work or whether that means that, you know, they've just gone through some kind of a loss or whatever it may be, or they've just become a new parent. And so they're dealing with that kind of transition too. Mm. So with that, I am extremely grateful for your time. I normally close my conversations as much as I remember by asking about happiness. And in a very interesting way, the work that you do is almost always trying to get us to our potential, if you want. It's part of that potential to be happy. And if that is the case, what would be your top advice? So I think for me, and this is part from the Designing Your Life program as well, is about finding alignment. Yeah. Alignment. Alignment. So who you are, what you do, what you believe, that triangle, which is from the DYL program, is is about how you find happiness in this moment in time. Yeah. And, and so I think that's, that's quite powerful. And of course, that triangle can change depending did, did on- Did they write you. about that already? Yes. They Damn. did write about it already. I, I, I thought I invented this. <laughs> I swear I didn't know about this. I, I call it the mind, heart, and action alignment. If yeah. your mind and heart and actions yeah. are not aligned, then you're basically not yeah. going to find happiness. You're not yeah. true to yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think also it's just the mindset of just of realizing that you're in this beautiful world and you've been blessed to be here and knowing that, you know, you get to design your life. Do you really? I mean, most people will say, I don't have that luxury at all. And true. And it can be sometimes a privilege and a luxury to feel like you can. However, you do have the freedom of designing your mindset as well, right? So no matter what situation you're in, right, whether it be you're in the middle of what they call it, we call in DYL a gravity problem, which is someone in your family is a victim of the earthquake, or you're stuck in that situation in Syria, whatever it may be, God forbid, you're having to accept that and design a different mindset around it in order to find happiness, right? Otherwise, it's very easy to choose unhappy rather than to choose happy, yeah? And actually something that keeps from your book that I keep telling myself when I'm in a difficult situation is like, choose happy, just choose it, right? And, and, you know, and sometimes everyone will tell me, it's not just a switch. I'm like, well, actually, maybe it is just a switch, it really right? Is. It absolutely yeah. is. Yeah. I mean, so, ju- just that choice of happy. I mean, in many ways, like like the examples that you gave, so many of us are so blessed, but focused on the negative point. Yeah. Like, I think everyone should literally chant every morning, I'm not in Syria, I'm not in Syria, I'm not in Syria, I'm not in Syria, right? Just remind yourself of that. I'm not in an earthquake. I'm not human trafficked somewhere. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Life is. Life can be so challenging and difficult. And yet most of us are focusing on the traffic or focusing on something that my partner said or whatever. I I call those problems of privilege in all honesty. Even if you lose a job, you know, which I know is nowadays is something that's happening so frequently, 
yes, that means you had a job. You know, so many people didn't for so long. You know, that means at least hopefully you still you still have a place to stay. You still have people that you're connected to. There's always someone who's struggling more. And I, I find it so interesting that we don't choose to remember that. Don't choose to be happy about it and grateful for yeah, it. Absolutely. Yeah? I am very grateful that you came to be my guest. I'm very, very, very grateful for your time and for your knowledge and for your passion for what you do. It's really, really uh, contagious. <laughs> yeah. It was such a pleasure for me to be here as well. And uh, thank you very, very much. And, and one thing that I just want to say about passion, if I can end with that, can I? Mm, of course. Is that, uh, you know, we think about passion. It's it's like Elizabeth Gilbert, I think she she interviewed and with someone. And she said that, well, instead of trying to follow your passion or find your passion, instead follow your curiosity. Mm. Uh, and I think that's just a really nice way of taking the pressure off, like finding that one thing you're supposed to do or the one thing that's supposed to make you happy. And, and rather just really take that curiosity for a walk and explore, you know, what makes you happy as well. So. Oh, I love that, actually. I really do. I think, I think that's a very good way to end, actually. Follow your curiosity. Because I will tell you openly, in the West, we normally take life as a target. It's like a point in the future that I will determine without really knowing anything about life. You know, I'm going to be the best lawyer that ever existed. And you're not even a lawyer yet when you make those choices. And then you chase that point and make it your life's purpose. And then when anyone tells you what's your life purpose, you defend it with your life. That's my life's purpose. When in reality, curiosity actually is a very, very interesting life purpose in itself. It's like, I'm going to explore every possible part of life. I'm going to explore what life throws my way. I'm going to explore myself. I'm going to explore the match between those. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it, actually, a beautiful sentence to end on. But of course, as I will have to remind my listeners, to be able to follow your curiosity, you probably have to provide a little bit of slow down time. You know, you have to allow yourself the space to be curious. You have to allow yourself the space to ponder, to reflect. And so, yeah, as I always tell you, uh, it doesn't matter how busy your life makes you think you are. There's always a tiny bit of time to slow down. I'm really, really grateful for your time. I'm grateful for all of you listeners for giving me the opportunity to meet with so many amazing people. I said that a million times before, but maybe you're new here. So please do the stuff that they do on social media. Go and rate the podcast five stars or refer it to someone and send it to someone that you like or post about it on social media. Or just call your dearest friend and say, this was a nice conversation. You should listen to it. Uh, help us reach more people so that we can together make a bigger difference. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time. <laughs>